You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Okay, my name is John Horgan. I am a science journalist. I also teach at Stevens Institute of Technology, and I live right next to it here in Hoboken. And um, I've been a, a kind of science correspondent for a really long time for Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV, and now this little podcast that I do for Meaning of Life TV called Mind Body Problems. And with me today is a really great science writer, physics writer, uh, primarily, George Musser. Spent a lot of time at Scientific American, um, as I did. We didn't overlap there, but I've been reading his stuff for years. And um, what I wanted to talk to you about today, George, is specifically uh, your book, which I'm holding up now, Spooky Action at a Distance. And um, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say this came out in 2015. 15. And I'm a little embarrassed to say I just read it. Now, I wasn't really thinking much about physics in 2015. Um, but now I'm in the middle of this project. I'm trying to learn quantum mechanics the way like a physicist um, would learn it with all the mathematics. Already that is turning out to be much harder than I expected. Um, but your book blew my mind, man. <laughs> really did. I mean, because, and that's what I want to talk to about uh, today. So um, can you just give like a quick, I mean, I, I could give a, a quick overview of the book, but I'd rather that you do it. So go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I should say, uh, John, you've been an inspiration for me my entire career, such as it is as a science writer. The profile you did of the people at the Santa Fe Institute is, is a classic, and <laughs> I love your mind-body book, too. With, I mean, going down to, to see Trivers, I mean, dude, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> and the Stu Kalpin story was deeply moving, and I hadn't actually known all that background of him. So um, it's an honor to be here with you. Oh, thank you. Um, so spooky action at a distance, I guess the book really began for me thinking about these phenomena and quantum mechanics of, of what Einstein called spooky actions, these, these strange coincidences or harmonies in the world. It's not really clear whether or what they're caused by, but things in the world seem to have a a, a synchrony, you could say, that spans distance and even time, which I didn't really talk about in the book that much, but there's also a temporal element to this. Mm -hmm. And then, actually, what was really the impetus to do the book, because other people have certainly written on that topic, uh, and but the impetus for me was connecting that to ideas coming from string theory, but not only string theory, of how space and also perhaps time might be emergent from some deeper physics and how, if it were, and again, speculative, but if it were, that would provide a natural explanation for the phenomena of, of quantum entanglement, which is kind of where this title comes from and what you're studying now in your, in your deep dive into the mathematics of quantum theory. Um, so the way I always just, just 
it's an analogy, it's a metaphor, but it's, it's, it's mathematically true and equivalent to what's going on in the theory is to think of this in terms of flipping coins. And you, you may have encountered this in your subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, you flip a single coin and assuming it's a fair coin and you flip it fairly, it's a random outcome, 50-50 heads or tails. And we can decide who gets the ball in soccer based on that. And, and all the vagaries of life can be decided randomly through a flu or coin toss. And then, but we assume, and this is a basic assumption of what it means to be random, that coin tosses, individual coin tosses are, are independent of one another. So if I toss a coin and I toss it again, even the same coin, but certainly a different coin or a different person or a different place, those coin tosses will be uncorrelated with one another. So they'll come out this, for instance, heads and heads at an outcome uh, will, will occur one fourth of the time because each coin has half a chance of getting a head. So it's a fourth of the chance of getting two heads, two heads, whatever. Heads sounds better. <laughs> For quantum purposes, heads is probably exactly, exactly. <laughs> so in in what but what happens in quantum theory is you can attack, have coins. They're actually particles that are treated as coins, and you can flip them, and they might violate that kind of intuition of independence. They'll actually be, in in some cases, perfectly correlated with one another, such that if you toss one, it comes up heads. The other one will also come up heads. Always. And that just obviously doesn't happen in our normal experience of random events. So the, the question is, is this, this seemingly esoteric phenomena, which actually turns out on examination to be ubiquitous in the world. It occurs in all sorts of processes in nature and is essential really to understanding the quantum influence in the world. What causes it? And the, the term spooky action or spooky actions at a distance was one way that and Einstein thought about how it, it could happen, that there would have to be some kind of almost mystical force in nature that can, upon one coin turning out heads, would cause the other one to turn out heads as well. But that's not the only way to, to come about, uh, to bring that kind of thing about. And that's where I go into the other ideas in the book. Well, what, what really surprised me, so first of all, um, I'm, I'm already trying to figure out you know, so this quantum project I'm involved in, of course, I'm going to try to turn it into a book. I've been, I've been um, really focused on, on learning quantum mechanics over the last, well, since the beginning of the pandemic, really, when all my other, all my summer plans were canceled. And, and, I'm, all, and I'm trying to figure out what I really need to know to say that I know quantum mechanics with, of course, the caveat which you have to mention that nobody really understands quantum mechanics. Um, but still, I, I want to know what I need to know, even to say that I don't really understand quantum mechanics <laughs> in the same way that, let's say, a physicist would not understand it. And a lot of people say it's entanglement. It's um, a particular, this particular quantum effect that you were just describing, which doesn't make any sense in terms of our common sense understanding of the world that comes from uh, particle physics, where you have, um, you know, there are objects existing in space and they can interact with each other either directly by bouncing off each other or via these forces. And quantum mechanics suggests that there are, there are some, there's some kind of weird uh, relationship 
between particles that doesn't make any sense in terms of uh, classical mechanics. One of the, the really revelatory parts of your book for me was um, realizing that this debate over how things can influence each other, whether the actions have to be uh, sort of directly mediated by forces or by other uh, objects, or whether there can be something more mysterious at play. This has been going on for millennia, really. Mm. I mean, you place it back to the ancient Greeks, and it was really highlighted um, by Newton, who had this, this uh, theory of gravity that even Newton realized didn't really make any sense. I mean, you could, you could say that gravity, as described by Newton, is spooky action at a distance, right? It, it really is. I think that's very well put. And I think just to take a step out of this for a second, kind of look at the whole history of it, and, the, and not just history, but I, and I, by the way, I really bring up the history in order to illuminate our present circumstances. I think both uh, history is interesting in its own right, but also it's good to know there's a continuity of, of problems here. So what makes physics physics and what makes it powerful, it's its ability to parse, its ability to set things on the shelf and Go with what you know and, and don't worry about what you don't. So this is kind of the philosophical heart of the Newton-Leibniz uh, debates and Newton-Cartesian debates in that time. And actually, even the debates you have in quantum mechanics today is that the quantum theory works very well. It literally has never, no exception to it has been found. So it, it works as well as is possible literally, experimentally. Uh, then Newton's laws of motion and, and of gravity at the time worked, and actually even today, if, with tiny exceptions out in the nth decimal place, works extremely well. So the, the, the practical side of, of physics says, I understand in the way of any human understanding anything. I've got a set of, of principles, and they're mathematized, and they tell me everything from cannonball trajectories to particle decay, anything. What more do you want, people? And this is where the Newton of Leibniz and that whole circumstance gets, gets interesting because it does help us understand today. Newton said, I frame no or feign no hypotheses about gravity, by which he meant, dude, just chill. <laughs> we, we, we got this. We, we, we can predict all these things, the Kepler's laws of motion based on the laws of motion and of gravity, and that's great. But what Newton didn't say in that particular passage is that he was extremely troubled that the second side of physics, so you've got the practical side, I can do these predictions, and then there's this principled side of what is causing that to happen. And that becomes practical, by the way, because physics works in this kind of stair-step process of you start and you explain a phenomena and then explain what explains, and you kind of go to the nth order of, of, of because, uh, and why because, why because on, on things. And that's kind of where we're at in, in quantum theory now. We've got this theory of quantum mechanics and its extensions in quantum field theory, standard model, the inklings of quantum gravity that work better than really we have any right as humans ever to expect. Why are we, our puny minds, able to understand this great universe of ours? 
And, but it's the next level of saying, well, what explains the thing that explains? What explains, in, in this case, the quantum entanglement or this, this holism of the universe? There's different ways to explain it, that systems can behave as a unified whole, even if you can't explain their individual parts, which is what is happening in the coins. With the coins, you can explain their overall pattern, but not their individual outcomes. Um, anyway, so yeah, if physics cycles, human beings cycle of thinking, well, I, who really cares about the lack of explanation? You know, I've got this great theory I can apply, but then we want the theory and we kind of go back and forth in this internal dialectic. Uh, so another, another thing that I hadn't realized, you know, I, I've written about um, quantum non-locality uh, going back um, at the least to the early 90s, I wrote an article about, about it called, I think, um, quantum philosophy, but it was really about all these experiments that were, were uh, variations on the, the two-slit experiment. And you explain some of these, you bring it up to date, the experimental work um, in your book. But what I hadn't realized is that there are other versions of non-locality emerging from other parts of physics. Uh, so maybe you could mention a couple of those uh, or just explain them. I'll, I'll mention them myself too that really struck me that I wasn't aware of involved black holes. And then I guess you'd call it the structure of the universe, right? Like uh, what explains the uniformity of the universe as we see it? And that is sort of a problem of, of uh, non-locality as well. So maybe you could just start with with uh, the black hole non-local uh, problem, keeping in mind that probably a majority of the people who are listening out there do not have have even less of an understanding of physics than I do, which is which means they they have virtually none. Yeah. So I think I, I'm glad you picked up on that in the book because it's. It was an important kind of epiphany for me to realize that, and it's part of really, again, the continuity of nature. I mean, of course, if there's, you kind of, at the end of it, say, of course, if there's going to be non-locality in quantum theory, in other words, this kind of breakdown of, of the concepts of distance that come out in these quantum experiments, you would, of course, expect that to occur elsewhere. Um. But it's nonetheless interesting because physics, again, has struggled with this for really since there was physics or there was natural philosophy going back all the way to Thales and, and, and Democritus. And fast forwarding, forwarding to, to Newton, Newton introduced this concept of gravity in which, for instance, the moon exerts a pull on the Earth's oceans. And if you actually just do the equations for it, you just... You put the distance in, you put the masses in, you get the force on the oceans, and you can work out the differential force, which gives rise to the tides. And it all happens instantaneously, and there's no sense of a transmission of force having to occur. It just, boom, the moon's there, it attracts. And Newton knew that was kind of a weird thing to happen. and But it wasn't, of course, until Einstein that a what we would now call a local explanation for gravity was developed, that... The moon does not instantaneously or non-locally act upon the Earth's oceans to cause the tides. It, well, it, it slightly kind of 
hard to put into the English language, but the, the, the influences have to propagate across the distance. And it turns out, in, in Einstein's understanding, they actually they propagate in the space-time continuum itself as gravitational waves, which are recently just confirmed or directly discovered, I should say. Mm-hmm. So, and I say this because you had Newton's law of gravity non-local, you had Einstein's theory of gravity local, right? But then it turns out, ironically, that Einstein's theory of gravity kind of, it was a prairie dog situation where it poked, or the, the balloon, you, it pushed down the non-locality in one area, but only have to pop up in a, in a different area. So it comes out in a lot of different ways. Uh, uh, one way, which really recognized in the 50s, I think probably after Einstein and had died, actually, is that concepts of, of energy, for example, cannot be localized. You can't really, in general relativity at least, and if you're providing a precise explanation for, for nature, not an approximate one. Approximate, we can talk about energy being localized, and here's some energy here in this, in this room or locked up in this particle or in my oven or something like that. But at the relativistic level, you can't really talk about energy being local. You can't really talk about anything being localized. The whole idea of a position in that theory is very fluid. And only in, in when gravity is very weak can we even approximately talk about positions. So then you get into the other phenomenon of gravity and the kind of case study for it, as you say, is the black hole. And this is where the, the problem becomes a bit sharper. So a black hole is kind of, you can think of it just a gravitational cesspool. It's a gravitational pit or a bottomless pit where and it, they're, they're observed in the universe and they're theoretically understood to be one way uh, streets, you could say, or one way processes where if you throw something into a black hole, it's gravity so strong that thing can't get back out no matter how fast it's moving. And the speed of limit is the speed of light. So because things can't exceed the speed of light, they're unable to, to escape the black hole. If they could, in theory, they could actually get back out of the black hole. So you've got these objects in the universe that kind of just suck things in. And then in, through the work of Stephen Hawking, it was realized, well, actually black holes also give stuff out due to processes at their perimeter. So you've got this kind of weird, they're, they're black, so this stuff can get sucked into them, but they're, they also give stuff back out. And that turns out to lead to some, some paradoxes, which we can go into later if we really want. But the bottom line is, that stuff seems to have to get back out of the black hole after all. So stuff has to exceed the speed of light in a sense, or it has to have the effect of exceeding the speed of light. That's not the same thing. And that's tantamount to a type of, of non-locality. It's just the, the idea of locality turns out to be quite closely related to the transmission of, of, of anything, but we always talk about it conventionally in terms of light, so speed of light. So black hole seems to set up a contradiction between the local theory of physics that Einstein thought he was creating and the need for some kind of non-local influence for things to escape the black hole again. And that's probably a very fast summary that's going to be hard for parts, but the bottom line is black holes seem to entail non-locality of some kind. Right. And so now maybe you can, and and by the way, I just want to say for um, just to make this clear, uh, and yeah. um, that 
what's at stake when we talk about locality versus non-locality is arguably our, our basic understanding of causes and effect of sort of the underlying logic of, of nature. You know, there's, there are all these things and one thing changes here and that sets off a ripple of changes around it. And, and through science, we can understand those changes and that, you know, understanding those changes, you could say constitutes scientific knowledge and, and all this assumes that there are things out there and you can locate them in space and then track their, their changes. Um, and if you're not, if you lose locality, then you possibly lose, you know, the sort of the foundation, the basic logic of cause and effect and of understanding anything, really. So the stakes here are really high. Yeah, there really are. And, you know, a lot of these, and I, even the way I've been discussing, we've been discussing so far, kind of makes it sound like, oh, it's just another weird mystery that the physicists have thrown at us and, you know, wake up every morning, a new mystery is thrown at you. But this is, this is different than the others because, as you say, it goes to the heart of what we think of as physical science and uh, of explanation in general. We assume that the world is a series of discrete events or things or objects or people or whatever, agents, and they they bring about causes, and so there's a chain of cause and effect in the world. They bring about effects, rather. There's a chain of cause and effect in the world. And importantly, there's kind of a – you can map that chain out. So you can say, well, A causes B causes C causes D. It never just goes A to D. It actually has to go through these intermediary steps. And furthermore, those intermediate steps are continuous in space and in time. So you, you say that, well, the way – the cell phone transmission or even the call we're having now goes between us is I talk into the webcam, it goes into the computer, it goes out the wire into the ethernet, it goes up into my uh, ISP, it goes out into a satellite or a fiber optic, it gets to you, it's transmitted back into light, et cetera. You can put together a whole chain and that's what physics is great about is it you can map this chain of events. And what normal locality seems to do is short circuit it. It seems to say, well, it doesn't have to go through that change. It's good. Boom. It's there already. And that's literally the definition of magic. If you were to just ask what is, what is magic? It is the lack of intermediation of this sort. It's a lack of causal processes. It's that I wave my wand and I, I cause an attack on Hogwarts to occur, or I apparate from place to place. I'm, 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 when, when the, the wizards and Harry Potter operate, they're not going through something or they're just stopping to be here and starting to be there. There's no process for whereby they are from here to there. Um, actually, that's why I like the flu network better. Cause it's kind of, you can understand how they can go into the, 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 the fireplace and come out the other fireplace, but the operation is a whole different type of, of, of transportation process. And we know that we recognize that to be impossible to be magical. And thus, non-locality seems to have that magic quality to it. And if anytime you see magic in science, you go, well, it can't really be that way, right? There's got to be an explanation. This is our faith, uh, as it were, or maybe better, our founding assumption as scientists is that we can eliminate those kinds of supernatural uh, intimations and, and provide a, a mechanistic explanation. And that's kind of where quantum mechanics is stuck, and black holes too, by the way, are stuck 
right now? Well, so uh, first of all, I, I just have to say that the section in your book in which you talked about how uh, certainly in the time of Newton and, and going well before that, what we would call science and magic were all interwoven. I, I, this friend of mine, uh, James McClellan, this really distinguished philosopher or uh, historian of uh, science, just retired from Stevens, he would love that because he always makes that point that uh, Newton practiced alchemy. He was a profoundly religious person. He had all these ideas that today we would call um, a cult, but science is always trying to sort of navigate between um, what we would call science, sci uh, scientific ideas now or rational ideas and ideas that from any, from a particular perspective might look totally crazy and magical and, and superstitious. Um, but if you could just give one more example, and then I want to go on to beyond space and time. Oh, wow. Uh, where your book ends up. Uh, but, but could you explain how non-locality arises if you're talking about uh, cosmological theories, theories of the origin of the universe and the, you know, the present structure of the universe? Right. So in this case, the, it's a less controlled kind of less controlled experimentally situation. We just were presented with the universe. So it's not like we can manipulate particles or, in our mind's eye, manipulate black holes to understand the kind of non-locality that's there. So this kind of non-locality is more of a, an empirical or an observed one. So it, there's, it's distinct from having a mechanistic non-locality. So it's, it's very simple. The sky looks essentially the same, statistically the same, I should say, in one direction as in the other. So if you go out as far as observations can go in distance and therefore in time, because of the way those two uh, are the flip side of one another, you go out, you know, going toward the big bang, right? You go billions of light years in one direction and you see this, what we call the microwave background radiation. So a, you basically see the primordial gas or primordial plasma, which was just glowing in what later was turned into microwaves. And it was very uniform gas that filled the universe back 14 or 13.7 or 13.8 billion years ago or thereabouts uh, with some minor fluctuations, but essentially just a haze. And it had a certain temperature. And you'd go out to the, in my case, my right arm going way out in this direction to the south, and then you go with my left arm pointing straight to the north, and you imagine looking at the sky as far out in those two opposite directions as you can in, can go, and they're the same gas, the same density, the same microwave emissions that we see today, the, the same temperature, and very the same properties. So the gas seemed to have been very uniform and homogenous out to the limits of our vision in every direction we can go. Now, what's mysterious about that is that those two areas on the sky that are not far out should never have been in causal contact with one another. And the reason is quite simple. Light has been traveling now for 13.8 billion years since those two patches on the sky. It's meeting in the middle at me. I'm kind of in the middle, by definition, of those two places. The light's coming from those two directions. It hasn't crossed yet to get to the other side. And it's the same in both those two directions. 
those two places in the sky or the universe have never been in contact and yet they're the same. So what it looks on the face of it, therefore to be non-local. There's no causal connection between those two areas of, of the universe, yet they have synchronized their properties. So there are, in fact, when this phenomenon is first kind of, it's been known for a while, but it's really appreciated. I mean, the microwave background was discovered in the 60s, and really within a few years, people began to actually think about this in non-local terms. And Zeldovich, the great Russian physicist, thought maybe this is connected with quantum entanglement. And then a new idea, which you've written about, came out of this idea of cosmological inflation, which tried to provide a local explanation for this seemingly non-local feature. I won't go into the details here, but that theory itself has difficulties. It seems to require some kind of precursor to set it in motion that almost pushes you just questioning the non-locality just further back in time. It doesn't really solve it in a way. So this is just, again, not, you don't normally put it in the same sentence, let alone uh, paragraph or whatever, as the quantum entanglement and the other phenomena. But I, I was very struck that it's actually very similar in many ways to those. And as I said, if you look historically, some of the early explanations for it indeed made the connection, then that was lost historically and then had to be recovered more recently. Yeah, I had never thought about inflation as being a kind of response to a problem of non-locality arising from thinking about the origin of the universe and, and the, its current uniformity. All right, so now I, I think you've, you've set us up for a discussion of, of the, the stuff that you present at the end of the book, really beginning with the chapter, Space Time is Doomed. So the way I understand it, you're saying that there are all these, I mean, it's more than hints, these, these signs that nature is giving us that uh, our, our basic understanding of, of space. And let's just throw time in also, just you know, for now. And then maybe we can disentangle space and time. Uh, but that our basic concepts are, are flawed or, or incomplete, or that space is maybe, maybe thinking of nature in terms of um, being there, things moving around in space and, and, and forward in time, maybe that's wrong. And there's some deeper level of reality from which what we call space and time emerge. And I had no idea, really, before reading your book, that there was so much um, creative thinking about this. So I, I don't know where you could possibly begin. This stuff is <laughs> hideously abstract. Very abstract. But if you could give us um, give us some of the flavor of these sorts of ideas that go beyond or deeper than uh, space time, I, I you know I I think the people out there would find it fascinating. Yeah, let me do, let me do what I can. Let me again give some context to this. So this is a line of thinking. This question of how space and time are maybe constructs that is not really coming out of the non-locality, or at least not directly come, coming out of these earlier non-local uh, phenomena that was of entanglement and so forth. 
Uh, it's kind of a different line of, though related, but distinct line of, of thinking about problems of understanding gravity and understanding how gravity relates to, to quantum theory is they must, the universe is, is uh, of a piece. It's not carved up into distinct domains. That's a human failing that our theories can't capture that unity that we do observe in the natural world. So we want our theories to do so. And as you, as you've written about it, as I've written about, there are lots of explanations, a lot of proposed explanations for, uh, the unity of the natural world, string theory, loop quantum gravity. And there's a lot of debates and often bad blood among these different camps. I think kind of unnecessarily, a lot of it's like big ender, little ender kind of, of, of debates. A lot of these physicists are really starting from the same principles and, and backgrounds and they take it in different directions. And then they later kind of jam uh, horns and, 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 and get upset with one another, but it really, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's less than meets the eye. I think these, these a lot of these string wars, so-called. Um, and then there's questions of empirical accessibility, which is obviously an issue. We, we, our theories, if they're to count as physics, will ultimately make predictions that are novel. That's important and testable. And we're just not at that stage yet. We're kind of in that early development of, of the field. And I think you have to kind of let it play out before being too harsh with your judgments. Before but being an asshole like I have been to the poor physics. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that, John. No, I mean, just, just give it time, man. I mean, we're, we're humans. We live on this earth such a short time, and these are big problems. So we shouldn't expect it to be done in our lifetime. And I think they have made progress, though it's frustratingly slow. Yeah. But this is all prelude to saying the following. Despite all those differences, despite all these disagreements, there's actually a lot of commonality among these positions. And one is that space, and probably time, so we'll just call it space-time for now, is derivative from something else. That itself is not spatial. So there's, there's, it's emergent in the same way that uh, gases and crystals and materials are emergent from atoms and molecules and so there's some kind of space atom in a way. Now, it's, it's important. When, when this idea was first put forward, I mean, Heisenberg, some of the greats of the early 20th century thought about these ideas. And they kind of, their initial take on it was, ah, there's space atoms that create space. So you have a lot of space atoms. You have a big space. It seems simple. You think of like a chessboard. You have eight by eight. Each, each little square is an atom of space in a way. It's the, the minimum unit uh, of the game. So there, that's kind of the, the, the thinking of it. And what's, what's important here is that each atom of space in this kind of scenario is itself space. It's a little pocket of space. It, it, on a square of a chessboard or, or a go uh, position on go or, or whatever. And the thinking today is a bit more sophisticated. That early idea kind of didn't work out because there's, you lose the symmetries of space if you do it that naive carving up way. Space is highly symmetrical in a way chessboard actually isn't because chessboard creates the ranks and the files and, and that sets up directions. Space doesn't have that kind of directionality to it. So now the thinking is that Space is this collective property that the actual individual atoms of space are not spatial. They kind of live outside space, whatever that might mean. And, but through their 
collective behavior, the way they integrate with one another, space uh, emerges from that. And this, the way it emerges, that's where the, 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 the different theories like string theory, et cetera, depart when I vets, but their point of, their basic foundation is the same. They're all postulating some kind of atom of space, as it were, even an atom of time in some cases, oh, that's, far, that's trickier. And then they, there's some kind of process of emergence that uh, arri- uh, is undertaken, and then the different theories kind of fan out from there. Um, so there's your, your cap, capsule explanation. So I, my kind of attempted, and I don't think I was very clear about it in the book. If I were to redo that chapter today, I would, the space time is doomed chapter, I would probably phrase it a little differently. I was attempting to say that there's a commonality among these different areas and I was drawing them together. Um, and maybe it looked like I was presenting my own theory when I was actually trying to synthesize these other theories. So the, the, for me, the commonality is really a network model of, of, of space. And this is seen in all these different approaches. Each of them has what you can think of as a network model in it. And the, 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 the nodes of the network, the little junction points of your tinker toys, it, those are the, the atoms of space. And then the links among them are the relationships among those atoms of space, how they interact with one another or how they connect with one another. And the, the, the whole space-time con- continuum is an approximation to that kind of, that kind of network. Yeah, what I, what I found, I, I actually thought that, you're, that, that you did what you said you hoped, you wished you had done. I, 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 got, I felt like uh, maybe I was projecting, but I felt like there was a commonality between all the different theories that I, you created a sense of all these people sort of fumbling in the dark and, and they might think that they're, they're going in different directions, but they're actually all sort of converging on the same thing, possibly. What I liked about the network idea is that the way you described it, it, it gets away from uh, thinking of um, dimensions as being spatial and that you realize that, I mean, you're talking about a more generic abstract concept of dimension that can unite people, unite different things according to all sorts of different properties or factors, which is what, uh, I don't know, like Facebook does. I thought you had a nice analogy there to how, uh, how our social networks unite us according to our shared interests and distance in space has nothing to do with it. And that maybe something like this kind of non-spatial relationships might be crucial to this deeper reality that you're, you're talking about. Um, one thing that I, I sort of felt like maybe I, I've learned just enough math for it to be dangerous and for me to think <laughs> that, that, I, that I understand something when I clearly don't. I felt like there are a number of places in your, in your book where you're talking about mathematical concepts while avoiding using the terminology for good reasons. So, for example, two of the things that I've been trying to grasp are um, the concept of vectors 
and especially vectors within Hilbert space. So there are vectors within ordinary 3D space, <clears throat> which, which sort of makes sense in terms of classical uh, physics. So you're sort of tracking um, the velocity of particles and, and, um, and their direction, and you can represent that with these little arrows in a three-dimensional space. But then once you get to uh, quantum mechanics, and I think this is, even happens in classical physics as well, the concept of a vector becomes much more abstract. Mm -hmm. You're getting further and further away from objects moving through space or accelerating or, or whatever. And then with Hilbert space, which is what you need to understand, I don't know, quantum field theory or even just basic quantum mechanics, you've got infinite dimensions. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly what exactly that means. And it, it, it seemed to me when you're talking about networks of things that are connected in various ways, that struck me as being a Hilbert space-like concept. Is that? Yeah, I guess a co couple of remarks. First of all, Hilbert space is, is infinite for some systems. You can have finite Hilbert spaces. That's what a qubit is in quantum computing, where there's a just discrete, in that case, uh, zero or one, and then kind of the superpositions of those. You get infinite Hilbert space when you're talking things like momentum and position that have a continuous range of values. So, but the, to me, a Hilbert space, I mean, a Hilbert space is just a mathematical tool. And with a, a space with a notion of, of distance within it, let's say. And, it's not uh it's not a place it's not a a thing in its own you have to have some physical ingredients that behave that the hilbert space is useful for describing their behavior in so i mean this this gets to certain debates within philosophy as to whether the very concept of a thing evaporates at the deep level of nature I think for the time being, I'm going to stick with that there are things. There are physical structure, physical, give me where there's structure, physical entities that bear structure, that have a structure to them. And the ones I talk about a lot in the book, for instance, are these uh, D zero brains that are of, of M theory. These are particle like ingredients uh, that then connect in a network. So they're the nodes of the network in essence and that give rise to space or the quanta of a volume that you might have in a loop quantum gravity, for example. Um, so I, I guess I wouldn't get so caught up in worried about the Hilbert space or configuration space. To me, they're, they're mathematical tools. And then we can have another conversation at some point as to whether we really don't even need the, the, the physical entities, whether we can just get by with this mathematical tools. And, and maybe Sean Carroll could speak to that or one of James Lademan or one of these people who supports object structural realism and can think about whether the structure is all there is. Uh, though I think even they would say, well, yeah, at the deep level, maybe there's no hard nuggets, no particles, et cetera. But certainly as you just march up the ladder, climb up the ladder of, of hierarchy in the world, yeah, you do get to a 
of something you can actually just kick with your foot and it'll fly off and it's an actual thing in the world. That was a digression. Sorry. Oh, oh that's okay. Listen, I, I, I hesitated to bring up Hilbert space. And I mean, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm fumbling around in the dark. Let me, there, there, we don't have a ton of time left and there are some really big questions that I wanted to get into still. Um, I'll, I'll just bring one, up one right now. And this is, this is, uh, uh, I'd have to say maybe the most fundamental different difference in our outlooks on, on theoretical mm-hmm. right now. And, and it goes back a ways. Uh, so correct me if my, I'm wrong, but, um, you seem to still believe that out of all this theoretical ferment, you know, your book ends with this, what I would call, I've actually was trying to describe it uh, to a friend of mine who's, who's also a journalist. I, I described it as like a, a frenzy of wild speculation. All right. You know, you've got, uh, we're not going to, we can't explain these terms, but the, you know, just to give people a sense of the kinds of ideas you get into quantum graffiti, uh, G R A P A P H I T Y. I mean, I love some of these terms, but I know, you know, these are the theories that are going beyond space time and, and uh, you know, going beyond uh, M theory and loop space theory to something deeper, which those are just approximations. Um, And, uh, and to me, when I look at this, it seems, clear that physics is kind of dissolving into um, fascinating, but ultimately um, untestable, unverifiable uh, conjecture that will never converge on what lots of people still crave, and I'm assuming you still crave, which is the correct way of understanding reality, physical reality. Your book seems to provide all the evidence one could need that that convergence, that achievement of consensus um, will never happen. We're going in the opposite direction. Although you make a plea for patience. I felt like that was, I, I took that very personally. I was thinking, <laughs> Sorry, no, no, no. I, I, no I, I feel that way about myself. It's like, give these people a break. They're trying to understand. They're trying to solve the deepest mysteries of the universe. Why are you so impatient? Um, but I still, I, you know, I love the ideas, but I'm looking forward. I'm trying to imagine where this can go. So I guess, let me just ask you flat out. Do you still think that someday we will find the correct theory of reality? I mean, just flat out. Yes, I do. But that doesn't mean I don't acknowledge that there may not be one, that humans may not be up to that task. I just, so I, I guess it works on, you asked me on a, on a Sunday, and it's Sunday now, so I'll just tell you my, my belief here is that yes. But maybe my agnostic view that if on Monday you would ask me would be, yeah, I, I think there should be. But more importantly, I think we need to act as if there were, because that's what drives science forward. So I think maybe the differences you and I have had in the past are temperamental. I, I'm, I'm the dude at the, who loves the Indian buffets and I order every single thing on the menu. And I think they're all great except the eggplant. 
Um, you know, I, 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 I'm a smorgasbord kind of person. I like diversity. I like thinking about ideas, and I think they're all cool. And I'm not really committed to any one of them. I just like them all. They're all lovely. And I think it's just fun as part of the puzzle and the play of this game that we're in intellectually to, to think about where these ideas are without being so worried about kind of what people a hundred years are going to, uh, going to be saying about it because we're probably all just wrong. Right. And I hope we are. I hope we humans are just so freaking far off because that means there will be progress in the next hundred years. I would be sad if we knew it all now. And this, I mean, it's not really you, John, that I have this debate, but there's more like people like Peter White or, or other people. And actually Peter softened a lot on this, by the way. Now he's got his own theory of everything. He's, he's a bit more open to, uh, to thinking about that, but I just let's have fun with it for now. Let's just not be so worried. And I, yeah, of course we want it to be testable. Of course we want there in the end to be an answer, but let's be five-year-olds, not 50-year-olds. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, you know, I think I've softened myself to an extent, but I've tried to think of other models for this kind of inquiry into, you know, these really deep questions, like what is space anyway? You know, what the hell, what is time anyway? What is matter? What is matter? Uh, I guess the way I'm looking at it and, and your book reinforced it is it's this really peculiar kind of poetry or an art form, um, that, uh, involves, uh, languages that you don't normally associate with uh, with poetry or art, um, you know, mathematical concepts, concepts from uh, physics, and we don't think of, you know, there's no end to art, uh, but art is also a reaction to the mystery, to you know, to the 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 weirdness of reality, and. Um, and art is constantly the good art makes us go, holy shit, you know, wow, I never thought of that before. It makes us see the world in a fresh way. And to me, that's sort of the point of um, of science, the kind of science that I love as well. I mean, science has a practical purpose, of course, and it's it's shaped our world, and there are all these uh, you know, there's science kind of a, applied science and engineering and quantum mechanics has accomplished a lot in that, in that regard. Um, but then there's the, the science I like just sort of tears the scales from my eyes and makes me look at the world as if I was seeing it for the first time. And when you're questioning space and time and bringing up all these extraordinarily strange creative theories that strikes me as it's like reading uh, Joyce for the first time or some modernist um, writer who makes you realize how, um, how much you, the way you look at the world just comes from habits of thought that you should be questioning, but there's no end to that. There's never going to be a final, like a, you know, the ultimate movie that, tells us how the world is or the ultimate poem or piece of music it's 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 ongoing and the kind of physics that you're writing about i think i would put in that category um it's never ending 
I hope it's never ending because, and this is this is something that I tried to write about in in, quantum, in, in the end of science. God forbid we find the you know a theory so powerful that it dispels our sense of mystery and we just find something else to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I identify with that sentiment and I love this kind of puzzle piecing and, and, and mystery seeking uh, that we do. And it, it's glorious that we're in this stage. Um, I guess one, I, I do think art and science are though very, very similar and come from the same impulse are distinct uh, in that the the human with the art the the human experience the subjective experience we have of the world as you've as you've written about eloquently is incredibly diverse and, and never ending because it it builds on itself it has kind of a self uh, perpetuating aspect to it that I think physical world probably doesn't I I think that I that there probably is an ultimate theory uh, in the sense of a foundational theory that is the the on which the others stand on which all our questions about why and because and why and because will terminate. But I, I, even when we have that, I don't think it, it takes away any of those, at least not yet, any of those sense, uh, any of that sense of, of wonder that we rightly have. And I, and I, I think look where we are today. We kind of already have, all the theories we need to explain everything around us. We don't even really need quantum. Well, kind of do, but just minimal quantum mechanics to explain uh, reality around, that we observe. And yet there's so much that we don't understand. I mean, I, I've, I've written about, maybe you have as well, about rainbows. The rainbow, the freaking rainbow that people have seen for as long as there have been people, still incompletely understood. There's so much interstitial frontier knowledge, interstitial frontier questions in science that we still don't get. We presumably know all the physical, biochemical, biophysical mechanisms of the brain, and look how far we are from understanding that. So I think even when, I, as I think, we reach a fundamental foundational level of physics, by no means is the scientific process over. Um, anyway, that, 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 that's how I feel. Um, and, oh, by, and one more thing I wanted to just riff off which is slightly distinct was the one quality of art is perspective. Whenever I go to an art museum and I hope I can do that again soon, I try to cock my head. And actually one thing I, I learned in a science talk is you close an eye and look at a painting, which is one eye, then the other that turns off the binocular vision and therefore lets the depth of the, of the painting come out. So there's different ways of, of looking at art. And I think, a lot of these debates in quantum mechanics, especially the different interpretations of quantum mechanics are different ways of looking at the same theory. They're all valuable in a way. So it's valuable and sometimes to think of in terms of multiverse, a Hilbert space first view. Sometimes the Bohmian particle view is, is helpful. Sometimes a history's approach. They're all, they don't quite dovetail together, but they do feel the elephant from different sides. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. I think there's an example of how a, even a well-established uh, theory of physics can have this multi-perspectival view that you're, you value so much in art. Um, all right. So that, that's sort of a natural segue into, you know, my last 
what might be my last big question um, or reaction to your book, which was that you don't get into the whole debate over the role of consciousness in a physical world, which, as you know, is for some people who are into foundations of physics and quantum mechanics is central. I mean, this is it, it's the measurement problem um, is really a problem about the relationship of, of my, at least as I interpret it and as a lot of other people interpret it, it's the relationship of mind to matter. What is that? Uh, and, uh, you know, some people, I'm not sure if Roger Penrose still hopes that his theory of everything does this, but the theory that he proposed back in the late 1980s and his first big book, The Emperor's New Mind, um, purported to be a quantum gravity theory that, oh, also explained where consciousness comes from. Uh, so I, I just wonder, first of all, if you made a conscious choice to not get into that uh, debate, maybe you could explain you know, why, why you made that choice. But also, I'm just curious about whether you think that uh, that some of the theories that you talk about or make possibly other theories will also, in, a, in addition to explaining physical reality, solve the mind-body problem. Good. Well, it's funny you say this because I'm now wrapping up my book manuscript that deals with these very questions, and it does deal with the intersection of physics and consciousness. I don't think the, the specific theories I talk about in Spooky Action really – I think those are decoupled from the questions of consciousness, mostly, because even if the mind has a role in, for instance, quantum measurement, and I think it does at some level, by the way, we can come back to that. It doesn't, that doesn't, that's distinct from this issue of non-locality and of, of the holism of, of the world that the quantum mechanics and the quantum theory seems to reveal to us. So, the, the last trip that I made, the plane, in fact, I was at, in this place when the whole uh, Kirkland, Washington nursing home tragedy unfolded. So just at the very beginning of the pandemic before, and I, we went to lockdown as soon as, almost as soon as we got, I got back from the trip, was to visit Sue Hameroff in Tucson. <laughs> okay. um, and he and I had a wonderful, almost something you would do hang out with him in this house and have long, deep conversations. And I, after your book, somewhat of an inspiration for me to do that. So he and I actually had a really good conversation. I, I actually went to the hospital. I helped, not helped him, but I observed him do some surgeries there. So that was, it was really interesting. And actually, I completely, um, I was very dubious about his and Roger's ideas about consciousness. And I've, I'm much more sympathetic to them now because I think they've been misrepresented, not least by them. So I'm going to have my own kind of distinctive take. I'm going to have a whole chapter in the book on, on, on their ideas that um, I think they would agree with, but it's going to put them in a new light and more sympathetic light than has been put in the past. So the the bottom line is I think, yes, I think the, the mind um, as a deep, and essential relationship with matter and the two have to be understood ultimately together. You can carve out pieces of that puzzle 
that don't depend on that. And that's what physics has done since Descartes, Galileo, as Philip Goff's book uh, talks about. But now we're at the stage where we, we can't bracket that anymore. And these puzzles of quantum mechanics, of consciousness itself, of cosmology and so forth really require us to get back to that. So in a year or whatever, uh, probably a bit more when that book finally comes out, you'll, you'll see my thinking on that. There's no big revelation. And I think I'm not saying anything hasn't been said out there with the exception, perhaps of this interpretation of the Penrose hammer off view that hasn't been said before. Um, I don't think that anything, no definitive answers have been, have been achieved, but yes, we, our minds, our consciousness are a part of physics and to, to ignore that is to cut off an arm of physics, is to just not complete physics. We need that. What's fascinating about this era in science for me is that um, it's, I feel we've moved really far away from the attitude in the late 80s and, and through much of the 90s in which what you might call materialism or some people call it physicalism was uh, dominant. And so every explanation that counted um, had to be an explanation of something that's happening at the realm of matter um, to produce uh, electromagnetism and nuclear decay and gravity and mind, consciousness and emotions and perceptions and all that. And I just assumed, you know, I interviewed Francis Crick, who made consciousness a respectable scientific problem. And I just assumed that if there were going to be a theory of consciousness, of course, it would have to be a theory about stuff that's happening in the brain that produces consciousness. What's really fascinating to me is that today, that whole assumption has been... Uh, challenged by some of the people who were central to the materialistic outlook, yeah. if you go back a couple of decades. So one of the, uh, the most dramatic uh, conversions, really, is Christoph Koch, you know, the, one of the great mm -hmm. neuroscientists in the world, who was the partner of Francis Crick, uh, promoting the materialistic neural view of consciousness, who now has this, now promotes this theory, inf integrated information theory, that um, that says that consciousness might be a general property of matter. It's panpsychism. Now he's hedged his hedged his claim. Depends on who he's talking to. I think whether or not he says you know he, he believes in panpsychism, but he certainly has said it in the past. Meanwhile, there are some of these other philosophers and scientists. Donald Hoffman is one who are promoting straight up idealism. Yep, the idea that mind is actually fundamental. This is, you know, I've become sort of friendly with Deepak Chopra yeah. uh, over the last couple of years. And this is like, this is stuff. There are respectable philosophers who are promoting what would be disparaged as Deepak Chopra-esque straight up woo. Right. Um, it's funny you say that about Deepak. I mean, I, he, he and I actually, I wouldn't say we're friends exactly. We're not drinking buddies. But we, I, I, I've talked with him actually, and um, I actually, uh, my opinion on him has shifted as well. I, I, I actually really admire him. I think he's much more careful with the physics than a lot of people give him credit for. He takes it in directions I wouldn't. 
this radical kind of idealism. But the actual passages he has, if you read them carefully about quantum physics itself, are, are true to life. Um, and I've talked to Don as well. He and I had a long conversation. He connects his ideas straight to string theory, straight to the work that uh, Nima Arkani Hamid is doing. Again, I, ha- you know, I have my doubts, <laughs> deep doubts about that. I'm not sure that's the way to go, but it's, I think, indicative of a kind of intellectual environment we're in now where these old barriers are, are for better or for worse, being crossed. And as you say, idealism, panpsychism are, are back on the t- uh, table. My, I think in my book, I, I try to, I, I say that, and I try to move on already because I want to, I want to be more specific. So for, inst- for instance, panpsychism has a lot of the very same problems of emergence that you see in physicalism. So physicalism, the problem, and the reason you would go to panpsychism is you don't think that no matter how you put together the neurons or the atoms, you can possibly give something that has subjective experience. Ergo, you have to postulate subjective experience in the, in the ingredients, physicalism, or uh, excuse me, panpsychism. But panpsychism also has a problem. How do you take these micro-conscious experiences and create a macro-conscious experience? So again, it's one of these things, like I was saying with quantum gravity, uh, if you put aside kind of the disciplinary divisions, the, the questions are, are in common. There's common questions that have to be to be answered no matter which approach you take. Of In this case, what does it mean to emerge? How can something give rise to something that's not already there? Um, so anyway, this is, I, I get into that a little bit. Um, don't really go much too much into idealism in my book, uh, just for my own. I, I'm personally a bit skeptical about it. I'll talk, I've talked about Don Hoffman, and I interviewed him at length, uh, and Marcus Muller, who has similar ideas. Um, but anyway, you'll, you'll see, I mean, yeah. all these people that you know as well are, are in there. I can't wait to read this book. Well, uh, we'll have to get together again and, and talk about it whenever, uh, whenever, um, whenever that comes out. Um, yeah, so we have been talking for about an hour, I, you know, I, anyway, I, I'll just reiterate that I loved your book. I'm going to hold oh. it up again now. Um, uh, it's really, uh, considering the, the complexity of the ideas that you cover, I'm just, I'm really, you know, as one science journalist to another, I've written about some of this stuff and just been overwhelmed by the, the difficulties of trying to convey my hazy understanding um, in terms that, I don't know, a reader of Scientific American, uh, for example, could understand. And I think you've done a, you've done a remarkable job. Um, and, uh, I, I guess just to say that to come out to some final ag- agreement at the end here, um, I think we're both really fortunate to be living in this period. For me, what's going on right now in science that, um, what I was calling a, like a frenzy of wild speculation, <laughs> is uh, it's so much more exciting than what was happening 25, 30 years ago. I mean, the excitement back then was the possibility of the theory of everything. I don't believe in that anymore. I guess that's a difference between us. But I love all the stuff that's going on now. I think you're right that scientists still have to believe that there is an answer out there to motivate themselves psychologically to work so hard on this stuff. 
But uh, in the mean, and you know, that's fine. Go ahead, let them. Uh, they're not going to be listening to me anyway when I'm telling them that it's not attainable. But, um, but it's so exciting to see all this creativity and everything is on the table now. There's, there's sort of nothing, no concepts are sacrosanct. Materialism, space-time, and, and all that. I, I think even this, the, the mind-matter debate that at some point we might move past those categories and see them as archaic. Um, and have some complete, so, some a totally new understanding of mind and matter. Uh, that won't be the final answer either, but that will be exciting and help us understand ourselves in new ways. That's what I'm hoping, anyway. I hope I, I completely share that that hope, and I think you can even in there see the ingredients of how it it would push back the finality, maybe forever and a receding horizon because of the, the, the power of the mind to create its own conditions, to shape our own conditions. They're not fixed. They're not given to us by the contingencies of evolution or our environments. We, we have an inner life that is our own and um, that will always throw up new things to explain. Every time we have, even if we achieve an explanation, that itself will provoke an experience that will then have to be further explained. So it's a bit like engineering in the, in the, in the specific sense of it, it's self-perpetuating. It's, it's, it always will be new with that. It will always create new things. And maybe I think one day we can even manipulate laws of physics, at least in a controlled way, like we already see inklings of that with these, with things like quantum dots, artificial atoms, but certainly in the future, will effectively create new laws of physics that we'll then have to explore. So I think um, even if there's an end of science or in sense of a fundamental theory, it will not be the end of science. It will not even be the end of foundational science. Yeah. End of science, no way. I don't know why anybody could be so foolish as to believe. No, I, who would ever <laughs> write a book on that? <laughs> All right. Hey, George, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. And I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to read your next book. And I'm going to, this time I'm going to read it as soon as it comes out. Uh, don't, don't, don't feel you have to. I mean, uh, I'm grateful that you got the spooky action and that you enjoyed it and it provoked ideas in you. Cause that's really what it's all about for me. God knows we don't make a lot of money in our profession. So just the idea of these ideas propagating out is what counts. This is it, man. What we're doing. This is, this is what makes it worth it. Exactly.